the Nuremberg Techno Train, <laughs> the, the rave, seven-hour rave train that runs through Germany. Come on. Which, can you imagine being in that train? I've been to some German raves. You have been to a rave in Berlin? Is that true? Yeah, like, I mean, I've been to, to like, special underground clubs. Wouldn't, wouldn't you if you were in Berlin and had the opportunity? Of course you would. Come on. No, I am not going to a rave in Berlin. That's not in my top 10. Sorry. I went to this one with my little sister when she lived in Germany, which was probably like 15 years ago or maybe even more. And um, yeah, it was in some disused industrial building like an old factory or something and they had this artwork made out of just like scrap random scrap and one of them was sitting on the bar and then every you know half hour or whatever they would just turn it on and it would just breathe out this big fireball just in everyone would just like you know get out of the way of this <laughs> this sculpture of breathing out a fireball and just keep on keep on dancing rosemary you, I, you, this is so out of character i can't believe you're within 100 meters of a rave that's insane. Probably these days it might be more likely to go to a Taylor Swift concert than a um, than a rave, but purely for if there was a seating option, I enjoy I enjoy a seated option at a music event these days. I had no idea. I mean, when I brought it up, I was like, "There's nobody who's been to a German rave." Oh yeah, I've been to the German rave all the time. But you you are crazy if you're going to go to Berlin and not and not go see any electronic music. It's very good. It's got a very good electronic music thing. Like if I was in New Orleans, I would go see some jazz. You know, like you've just you've got to go see the cool thing where where you go. Invite me along to some events, and I'll tell you what the cool thing is happening in that city, and um, yeah, help you help you to get a little bit of cultural experience. Orsted held an investor conference call uh, November 1st, and Phil, there's so much discussion within that investor call. They eventually had to to stop it. That investor call went about 90 minutes. Usually those calls go one hour, and that's it. And the Q&A sessions are pretty short, so it's usually about 40 minutes of presentation material and 20 minutes of Q&A from investors. But this one was like the opposite. It was about 20, 25 minutes of PowerPoint presentation, followed by an hour-ish of big-name banks and investment firms asking very pointed questions of Orsted. And this all revolves around Orsted ceasing operations at Ocean Wind 1 and 2 in New Jersey. This is a big deal because creates an, what they call an impairment. And Phil, you're going to have to explain what exactly what an impairment is, but they're talking about an impairment of roughly 28 billion crowns, the Danish currency, which is a roughly 4 billion US dollars. Uh, a few months, a m- even about a month ago, they thought that was only going to be about 2 billion. So they've essentially doubled that forecast in a matter of a month. And I know, you know, going from two to four billion, two and four are small numbers, but when you put the B behind it, it really matters. That's a lot of money. 
And the reason they're having this is issue is that when they ceased Operation Ocean Wind 1 in particular, they had already put a lot of money in it. They have a lot of orders in for wind turbines and cables and everything else. Stopping that uh, creates penalties, essentially, for stopping them. And New Jersey, the state of New Jersey is going to have some penalties applied. We can talk through that as we go along. But, Phil, first off, why the stoppage at Ocean Wind 1? Orsted felt that the project was not uh, financially viable. One might question why the timing of it, because after so much deliberation, um, so many months worth of, you know, getting the government to agree to, you know, certain, you know, the release of those tax incentives um, that they were supposed to be getting in the first place, um, getting the supply chain contracts in place, as you indicated, it's it's an interesting timing to pull the plug right at this moment, and it's caused a lot of ire uh, amongst the the folks in New Jersey, particularly those within the government. There are certainly some people who are, you know, mostly on the lookout for whales and whatnot that are happy about the fact that it's it's being canceled. But in the meantime, you know, Orsted's actually at least done the um, the fiscally responsible thing by not pursuing an untenable project. However, I, I'm I'm scratching my head as to how they reconcile, all right, you've signed supply chain contracts, but you're saying that the supply chain is the issue. If the supply chain is not meeting their obligations under those contracts, then how is Orsted eating all of those contracts in the first place? And and why are they liable? Why are they, you know, taking the impairments are one thing, but the the write down is another. They have a five hundred and thirty million dollar U.S. dollar write down um, as a result of um, well, just in in the most recent quarterly uh, report. Anyway, um, the question is, you know, yes, they've sunk a lot of money into this, but the the it's better to not build a financially untenable project but i'm i'm curious as to how they let it go this far and why i i can't seem to reconcile how they they aren't putting the onus on the supply chain companies if they're the ones who are faltering and are creating a situation where it's untenable for for them to build the project then why aren't the supply chain companies seeing you know half their market cap drop you know why why Orsted? yeah and joel i i think from what i've seen they are obligated to per make those purchases to buy uh, for ocean wind it's ge turbines or haliad x turbines and the discussion uh, from orsted was although the gross termination fees for all the supply chain uh effort is about 18 billion crowns which is a little over two billion dollars uh, that they may be able to repurpose those turbines over in the UK. <laughs> Essentially take the electronics out, convert them from 60 hertz to 50 hertz, and move them somewhere else. So they, they were hoping to either reuse or sell or something the turbines and the cables and all the things that they had on order. Does, does that make a little bit of sense, Joel, if contractually? Because I, I think Phil's right. Like, why just not just cancel the contracts? But it seems like in Ocean Wind 1, they're going to end up taking all the equipment. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. So they'll, I mean, the contracts, smart contracts or any contract of that size to mobilize a supplier, you have to give them some kind of guarantee and promise, right? Like nobody, if I'm not, you're not going to order, uh, say you're an oil field company, you're not going to go and order 200 pickups from a GM dealer. And they're just going to go like, okay, cool. Whenever you figure it out, we'll, we'll have the trucks ready for you. Well, they're going to say like, Hey, we need some prepayment or some guarantee up front. And this is all specialized equipment, right? So if they're going to do, or if Orsted's going to get a contract in place to build these GE turbines or to build, you know, 120 miles of cable, well, they're going to have to have had get some, give a little bit of promise up front. Now, the level of that promise, I'm not in GE's commercial team. I don't know what that is. Um, I would imagine that they've had milestones, milestones being final investment decision. All of a sudden they owe a little bit more to get these guys moving. Um, because it's not that simple, right? It's not it's not an easy thing to go make all these specialized cable or make all these specialized turbines. So they will have had to put some kind of promise down or some kind of guarantee of sorts to the turbine manufacturers or the other subcomponents out there. And like you said, if they they're building stuff other where other places, I mean, there's also Revolution Wind and some other things happening there too, right? So. They've got some projects that are going on um, in different theaters in the world and on different leases and things like that, that they can repurpose those contracts for. However, it's it's not ideal, right? It's not ideal for anybody in that supply chain. Like Phil said, uh, why haven't we seen the the other people dive, you know, the GEs of the world and whatnot that are supplying those turbines? Well, they have some uh, some guarantees, but you know, on the other side of it, some of the other supply companies aren't publicly traded, so we don't really know what goes on inside of them. Let me go through the, the list of sites here and then sort of what the equipment is. Ocean Wind 1 and 2 were Heliad X turbines. This is the, when they got into the patent dispute about Siemens Gamesa. Everybody remember that? And the, the settlement there, right? So Ocean Wind 1 and I think 2 were involved in that. Uh, Rev, Revolution Wind, which is down in Connecticut and Rhode Island. Those are Siemens Gamesa turbines. And that project is still a go. Uh, Sunrise 1 and 2, that's an Orsted and Eversource uh, combo for those projects. And those are supposed to be Siemens Gamesa turbines. And last one is Skipjack, which gets mentioned in the Orsted discussion here. Uh, that, that, that's happening down in Maryland. Actually, the turbines are off the coast of Delaware, but the power is going to Maryland. Those are also GE Halliade. Or supposed to be GE Halliade, but that that whole project's on pause. They're not spending in another nickel on that project. So you have Ocean Wind One and Two that are stopped. Skipjack, which is in pause. Uh, Sunrise, which can't offload anything at the point at this point, and Revolution, which is the one that's progressing. Uh, South Fork's another one that actually is progressing. So in, in the in the bigger scheme of things, the big gigawatt projects are all stopped. That's what it looks like right now. Didn't seem to matter who the wind turbine manufacturer is, even though it seems like GE is part of the problem here. You're right. No one on the GE side has said anything about this. Does, does that make sense, Phil? Vestas put out a statement saying that they weren't going to be impacted by Orsted's decisions. So there you go. Well, there you go. There, there are definitely ways you could repurpose some of the, the contracts, yes. The question is, I mean, Skipjack was the other one that sounded like, you know, you mentioned it's paused, but it sounds like that one is likely to be canceled as well. Um, again, I don't know if they're going to sit here and cite these supply chain issues, these magical supply chain issues, which, okay, if this, if 
the the contracts have already been struck and you you know in order to qualify for ITC credit you have to put at least i think it's 5% down on you know what is likely to be more than a billion dollar contract in in the first place then you know that's you know that's something they're probably not going to be able to claw back but just like building the project in the first place versus not building it you're you're not obligated necessarily to to spend money that you haven't already spent um you may cancel a contract and and face penalties for canceling the contract but ultimately it's less money than an unviable project so I, i'm still there's there's something that we're all missing um as a result of of this whole thing what we can say about it is that it's clear that the us in general has not really done enough and it's it's interesting in the context of you know, hey, let's get four more lease areas set up in the Gulf of Mexico, which we just had an auction down there and it was a flop. So the U.S. hasn't really done enough to create an environment in which everybody's ready to invest. And more importantly, everyone's ready to recognize the fluctuations in price that happen with throughout the rest of the energy sector. So here's what I don't necessarily understand. You know, we're having these huge discussions where, you know, contracts get canceled um, on offshore wind. You're seeing, you know, in New York, what was going to be 10.6 gigawatts get built is now going to be 6.4, if that. Um, And, you know, when when oil and or uh, petroleum prices fluctuate, nobody goes running down the streets, you know, with their hair on fire screaming that that it's you know a huge problem i mean i i'm you know again i don't we go back to why didn't new york renegotiate that would have at least kept the ball rolling on these projects being built why is the governor of new jersey now demanding an extra 300 million dollars on top of the the you know uh cancellation fee that that orsted's gonna have to pay for ocean wind one and two um, you know, because he's feeling aggrieved at at that whole process of them, you know, getting the the state legislators on board with uh, giving Orsted those those tax credits that they were supposed to get in the first place, uh, and, and so now he he wants an extra three hundred million on on top of it. That that must be nice. Uh, so I, I just I mean, if I'm an investor right now looking at the U.S. market, I, I'm looking elsewhere. I mean, that is that is this, the message that the federal government and some of these state governments are sending to the industry as a whole right now. I, I want to I feel I want to I want to go to that. What Murphy said, the, the governor of uh, New Jersey there. Today's decision by Orsted to abandon its commitments to New Jersey is outrageous and calls into question the company's credibility and competence. Those are strong words from a from a, uh, you know, an elected official. Well, let's ask an impartial party here. Is Orsted, Rosemary, is Orsted incompetent? Uh, I don't have any reason to say that they are, I don't think. I think this all sounds pretty rational um, from, I can understand why all players involved have acted the way that they have. But um, yeah, I don't think that there's a whole lot of eyes on, you know, 10 years in the future. I think everybody is responding to, you know, short term 
financial problems and not worrying about long-term relationships that they're going to, yeah, they're going to need in a decade time. I, I think that, <laughs> yeah, it's time for a few people to, you know, take a step back, take a deep breath and just think, you know, is it worth um, winning this battle or, you know, have we got some longer strategic war that we're going to need to, you know, have certain partners for and maybe, yeah, best not to just blow up everything all over the place because you contractually can. Well, New York and New Jersey need Orsted and Equinor in the next 10 years to build out some offshore and maybe even some onshore wind. Well, yeah, I, I think that the way that New York is behaving now is suggesting to me that they think that they can do without any wind energy at all. Um, and if they do think that, then I'd like to know what their their plan is because, you know, they've already ruled out a few things. Um and you can't, you know, you don't need every single energy generation technology available to, you know, make a reliable grid, make a clean grid, to make a cheap grid. But the more, the more of the, you know, main players that you rule out, the harder it becomes to make it cheap, clean, reliable. You know, you're going to start missing on some of those metrics. And um, I yeah, I guess, you know, growing up would say, what compromises am I willing to make? Am I willing to pay twice as much for my electricity just to make a point about about the wind industry? Um, would we rather go back to nuclear? Would we rather go back to fossil fuels? You know, um, I'm not saying the answer is definitely wind and I wouldn't like to see the wind industry become like, yeah, like the nuclear industry where every single project runs over budget by 100 or 200% and um, over schedule by a similar amount. Like, I don't want to see that for the wind industry. So I want us to, <laughs> I want us to grow up a bit as well and start thinking about how can we learn from the mistakes of these projects. And, you know, like if it means you've got to put in, in place hedges for some of your major costs for the future, then you do that to make sure that um, yeah, that you are going to be able to supply projects that you've committed to. I just think it's bad looks all around. And yeah, like I said, I think that, you know, if you continue down this path, then we're going to end up really similar to what the nuclear industry is like. And, you know, I've got nothing against nuclear, but you, every, anyone that's looking rationally at the situation would have to say that, you know, nuclear power in the, the Western world, at least, is not, you know, a shining example of technology development um, done well. It's a lot of expensive projects that, uh, you know, make ridiculous promises and then fail to deliver and leave the, you know, public on the, <laughs> on the hook for paying increasing bills. And there's no reason why wind energy needs to go down that way, but it is starting to look like that, to be honest. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. So following on with what Rosemary said, I want to just I want to give a voice to or or at least shine light on what may be happening in conversations that aren't a part of this podcast, right? We're all wind industry supporters. The people that listen to the podcast, for the most part, all wind industry supporters. So we want things to succeed. We want things to do well. And we're looking at like, what happened here? How can this happen? Um, what, why are these people acting this way? What could we have done to fix this? But on the other side of things, like I'm reading an article today about um, 
the people that actually were happy that this failed. There was a ton of, uh, of, of people that have been trying to fight big wind up and down the East Coast that, oh, we, we filed lawsuits and we did this and, you know, there's a, this, this lawsuit and that lawsuit and this group and that agency and these different things. So I don't know if those actually have a, a play in, you know, the decision making that Orsted had, if they're actually, you know, they, they seem pretty frivolous for the most part. But what this does, I think, is it gives a voice to the other side. So the other side saying, and like I said, I'm switching hats here just to give a voice to the other side saying, um, this makes anti-wind people a little bit more happy because they can say like, hey, this is a subsidy propped up ITC, PTC, uh, IRA bill industry that can't weather the storm, like Phil was saying, of fluctuating prices and you know fluctuating prices in the market, whether it's, whether it's interest rates, fluctuating price of capital, fluctuating price of commodities of people, of steel, of whatever that may be, like the hydrocarbon industry does, because hydrocarbon industry is also famous for taking massive profits when things are good. Whereas the wind industry has come in and they run at such a, a, a close, you know, skin of the teeth margin to try to get by because it is expensive for a renewable energy transition. The, and the grander scheme of things, I think the, like the other, like I said, the, the opposing side of this is, yes, we, we beat this, we beat this, but in the, they're not seeing the larger the the renewable energy transition goals that you know you may need some government support you may need some help along the way to get this industry in here that doesn't run at these massive margins nobody wants to see you know wind come in on build offshore and when times are good they're they're just reaping profits and everybody else is having to pay them like they like the oil and gas companies do at point certain points in time so the the industry is it's not it's not apples to apples when it comes to the operating model and because of that, the, 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 you know, the extra fluctuation in prices has really hurt it. And so while I see that this could be the, you know, a victory for anti-wind people, I, I think in the grand scheme of things, like Rosemary's saying as well, you're not thinking about the long run. You're not thinking about, you know, what happens if we don't actually make this transition the, and the, the implications of that. Yeah. And I, I do think there is... Uh, some mixed signals at the moment, and uh, New Jersey and New York are really um, quietly trying to bury Orsted. And here's why I say that: uh, Orsted saying that Sunrise One, which is a big project, uh, when it got rejected uh, for a rate increase, remember the, a, a few months ago, weeks ago now, they were asking for to raise the PPA price that they agreed upon because of interest rates. And New York said no and rejected it. Well, in the recent third auction that New York just held, they were paying more, higher PPA prices than what Orsted was asking for. So Orsted's a little confused by that. Like, well, wait a minute. We offered you less. Three, Yeah, I think Equinor's in that same boat. Yeah, right. So... Equinor is still saying Sunrise 1 is still possible because of some tax implications here. They, they, they're going to bring the cable on land through a brownfield, and that allows them another 10% ITC bonus because of that. Uh, and, but in order to, there's a, a new rebid, right? So New York decided to do a quick rebid, which is supposed to happen like Q4, Q1, right? Uh, 2024. Uh, but Orsted and Equinor are prohibited from bidding in this thing. 
So the, the, the companies that could bid, that are ready to go, that have bite auction sites, right, right. They have the leases are at the moment prohibited. Now, you're not going to read that everywhere in the press, which is weird, right? But if you listen to the, the Orsted investor call, they clearly say it, that, that they're having a problem because they want to rebid Sunrise One, but they can't. They also mentioned during that call that they had used Sunrise Two during that third auction, that they had, had put a, a bid in in that third auction, and it was rejected. So Sunrise One is rejected, and now it's tied up. Sunrise Two, basically the same plot of the bite, uh, got rejected by New York. So if, if I'm Orsted, I'm thinking New York has it out for me. They don't want any, anything to do with Orsted, it seems like. And you could say, I think Ecuador is thinking the same thing because they're, they're in the same boat. That is a problem. And, and sort of back to Rosemary's point, are they, is, this, is this something at a higher level that is really going to hurt them in the long run? Because the reason that Orsted saying all this thing in ocean, ocean wind turned to a problem for New Jersey is because of delays, uh, permit delays, supply chain delays that eventually rolled into the availability of a jackup vessel. Now, Phil, before we get into Jones Act, because this is where this is going, they had, they had an opportunity for a jackup vessel to do these projects. If it got pushed out too late, which is what was about to happen, that jackup vessel was gone. And so they had to sign in another one, which would happen years later that that vessel become available again. And at that point, the cost of the project would explode. Therefore, Ocean Wind 1 and 2 were stopped because of this jackup vessel problem. Now, if that is a driving factor, what is being done to address the lack of ships? Anything? I mean, there's plenty of ships if you want to get them in China. But if you want to comply with the Jones Act, then you got to have a U.S. flagged vessel, don't you? Yeah, I think one of the problems here is that there's, I mean, and this is a, a federal to state to community, whatever government agency you want to talk about in the United States, for sure, is interagency communication and interagency strategic planning is, it's like absent. It's like we have slack. We all work remote and we can communicate all day long with each other fantastically. I don't think the U.S. government has a slack system because they don't communicate with each other, right? They have this, they have uh, the Biden administration setting these goals. They're not, to, to get this goal, let's go go right down to the foundation of the goal of, of 30 by 2030, 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. To get this, you need to have all the pieces playing together. There needs to be a, a, a web of people interconnected, working and pulling and rowing boats in the same direction, trying to get the same things done. They're simply not. That's that's the reality of it. The you can say all you want at the top, but if that doesn't get communicated down with plans and interconnected communication and action, it's not going to happen, right? It's, we've been watching these things. We talked on the show three or four months ago about problems with getting ports, just, just getting a port facility, getting a quayside built. And there was like, what, seven or eight or nine agencies involved in this decision up in, I think that was in Massachusetts or something, right? That's one single little port right? That's one little port. That's one tiny part of this thing. So like, uh, we just got, Alan and I did an interview with a, a gentleman today and we, and very, very smart man from Norton Rose Fulbright, uh, David Burton talking about 
uh, all this tax equity investing and all these different things. This is the IRA bill that partially props up offshore wind in the United States. However, there's guidance that hasn't even been let out to the public and might come end of this year, might come in six months, might come in nine months. That's still hanging out there. And this bill was passed 14 months ago to get to to spur on this all of this innovation and all of this build out of onshore wind, offshore wind, the green energy transition, all the above. But all of those things still aren't even settled. So if you can't get your ducks in a row and the people in one room to communicate a, an action plan, it's it's pretty basic business in my mind that most of them live in the same city. Go to one Starbucks and figure it out. Yeah, per- permitting it is a big issue. I think Orsted's trying to get away from blaming governments. And, and the, the words that uh, Mads Nipper talked about the governor and the state of New Jersey was, hey, we're trying to work in, in good faith, and I understand they're upset, but we were trying our best, and we think they did a good job. So he's trying to mend the fences, but New Jersey is not, <laughs> not going to play that way and is, is really attacking them. And I think this goes back to the point you made before about how it feels like both New York and New Jersey are maybe a little bit fatutsed at, you know, the the whole um, process that this has had to go through. They, you know, these are both states that are highly dependent on coal and natural gas in the first place. Um, and... It feels like they're trying to compel Orsted and Equinor, for that matter, to just sell the lease areas to somebody else and have somebody else step in and and build. Like, they'd be okay if somebody else built, potentially, particularly like an American company, although there's not that many of those lying around who are going to spend the cash on building an offshore wind project, which is why we got all the Europeans to to buy the leases in the first place. So I, I don't, I don't know what the the answer is here. I just wanted to um, ask a question. I've been reading this book, uh, How Big Things Get Done. Have you have you guys read that? It's by a uh, Danish guy, Bent Flubia. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this um, table I keep on coming back to in the back. It's got all of these large scale um, projects and it's split them into project type and then calculated the mean cost overrun by looking at, you know, a large number of projects in each one. Um, and yeah, so... At the top is nuclear storage, Olympic Games, nuclear power, the most um, cost overrun on average. So that's yeah, 238% average cost overrun for nuclear um, uh, storage and 120% overrun for nuclear power. And then at the bottom is solar power with 1% mean cost overrun, energy transmission 8% and wind power with 13%. So it's third from the bottom. Um it's not, you know, everybody is tearing their hair out over how could this happen that, you know, a project costs more than you thought it would and you want to renegotiate. But it's not as if that's, uh, you know, un- maybe it's unheard of in renewable energy. You know, costs have just been decreasing so fast that it's very easy to promise a price and then live up to it because you- your costs are probably going to be lower by the time that you go to build it than when you promised it. So now wind isn't like that at the moment. Um, you know, costs are going up, very similar to what a lot of other industries, a lot of other kinds of technology have had to face. My question is, do you think that wind power is, you know, becoming more of a, you know, just a normal kind of uh, project that does sometimes have cost overruns depending on what's happening in the broader um, economic climate and that people kind of just need to shift their, their thinking 
Yeah, well, I think one of the differences there between wind, say, a wind project and a hydroelectric dam or something of that sort, is those projects are very much, the, the ones that have the high cost overruns, they're very much have uh, uncontrolled costs in them. So uncontrolled costs being things that, maybe not uncontrolled, but loosely controlled, a lot of trucking, a lot of earthwork, a lot of dirt work, a lot of fuel, a lot of those things. So if you're building a dam, you've got people out there in excavators digging, digging, digging your pain by the hour for them while you may have been bid. But those things are easier to have an overrun. Whereas if you're building a wind farm, basically you have fixed, you should have fixed costs. You have equipment, limited amount of civil work, and then materials. So I think it's the, the projects that have heavier civil work or heavier like concrete usage or things like that where it's a little bit more loosely controlled that have that that higher overrun whereas wind is wind and solar are pretty much like you got to buy the materials and getting the stuff installed is usually pretty pretty small portion of the cost compared to the materials in the state of new york one of their major uh utilities central hudson has asked for a, and apparently is, is going to be approved for a $30 per month per customer rate increase to pay for, amongst other things, natural gas and uh, some additional transmission. And is anybody having a, a gigantic debate over that? No. That rate increase is pretty much going to get rubber stamped if it hasn't been already. Uh, you know, they asked for this rate increase back in July, I think, and um, the early indication was in the, the early part of September that this was going to get approved. Uh, so you don't see, again, you know, <laughs> you don't see people tearing their hair out, as, as Rosemary said earlier, about the fact that they're having to pay $30 per month more. You know, it's spread out over a number of years, so... Uh, you know, but it's still, I mean, $30 a month more for, for gas. I would say if I, if I was to, to make the shortest answer that it's because when you're talking uh, energy created by hydrocarbons, you're not talking about a bipartisan political issue. When it comes to wind, it's a bipartisan political issue and more of the arguments are political over technical. And that's the problem. And when you're talking hydrocarbons, People aren't going to fight that as much because it fits the uh, regime of conservative versus liberal. And we should talk about the, the leadership at Orsted for a minute and what the investment community response to these latest announcements was in that call. There were a lot of concerned investment groups. In fact, one of them uh, was offering advice, which I've never heard of in an investor call, saying, we don't know how to... Free consulting, which you never want from investors, right? Uh, what, what that investor was asking was, we don't know how to value you. We know you have a lot of value, but we don't see it. And our clients are wondering what we should do. And on top of it, we don't feel like there's a plan. Everything's in fluctuation, and we don't know where you are headed and how you're going to manage these things. So we're uncomfortable providing guidance. And when the Orsted said they didn't need any equity, well, the market obviously doesn't believe them. And when Orsted said they're going to pay their dividend like they planned to pay it, the markets don't believe them. So there's a leadership issue in terms of trust, whether they've earned it or it's unearned just because of the situation they're in, I don't know. But it, it, one of the items that popped up, and I think this was a really good question, was 
why did Orsted pay New Jersey $100 million in escrow, saying they were going to complete Ocean Wind 1, and then literally a week or two later said they weren't? And that money gets tied up. I think they paid, I think that money's in a bank account somewhere, along with $200 million that's in escrow for supply chain development. And that's where the $300 million is coming from, is that New Jersey, I think right now, has $300 million sitting in account in escrow that Orsted can't pull out. That's a real leadership question, right? That $100 million is a lot of money, and you can't change your mind. You should have made the decision before writing that check. Phil, am I, am I missing something here? It just seems like the investment community is really concerned about the outcome of this. Yeah, as, as I mentioned kind of at the top of this, there's a difference between the impairments that they have and the write-down, the $530 million write-down. It's $300 million as part of that write-down because it's cash that they've spent or is otherwise tied up, as you mentioned, and they can't get it back. So the, at the end of the day, I think that's the real question that investors have is, why did you guys sign such strange contracts, such, uh, you know, contracts with language that tied you up in a way that was going to be, you know, uh, financially disastrous if you do exactly this. If you decide to pull the plug on the project, you are still locked in to, you know, having spent and committed this, uh, this money. Um, and that's why I say, I mean, for, for the governor of New Jersey to come out and say the things that he did and then say that, okay, well, you know, We'll take this three hundred million, but they were I mean, he was literally expecting more. Um, you know, it's it's almost like, hey, you know, we spent a lot of time on helping you guys get your act together um with all these tax issues and uh, the the permitting, et cetera. Um, you know, so you should you should further compensate us for that. I, I've never necessarily seen, I mean, maybe that happens in, you know, I, I don't want to pick on any countries, but you know, Kazakhstan or someplace like that where, you know, it's like you want to go in and build a project and then decide you don't, well, maybe they'll keep your deposit. Um, but such inflammatory language in the U.S. Uh, from, you know, a Democratic governor who, again, is supposedly supportive of wind energy um, and, more importantly, the union jobs that it's going to create, why burn the bridge? I think Orsted is not really in financial trouble. I do think long-term they're going to be viable. Come on, right? They, they're, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. Equinor will be fine. New York, New Jersey, probably not so fine. I think they're the ones in the long-term they are going to get hurt by this because what are they going to do? As Phil was talking about, they're, they're, they're going to raise gas prices in, in New York. I think that will continue. They don't have any way to control it, really. And if they're serious about reducing carbon dioxide emissions, they're stuck, right? They're stuck doing more expensive projects than offshore wind. And if you're the next people that come in or the next company or group of companies that come in to try to develop the same space that Ocean Winds 1 and 2 occupied and or any of these other uh, offshore wind leases have been pulled, what are they going to do? Phil and Rosemary, we, we said it earlier in the episode, the PPA prices are going to go up because they're going to insulate themselves against risk. So the prices of energy coming from the offshore wind resource are only going to get higher on the East Coast because of all of this fallout. And when it comes to Orsted, I mean, they're, 
Building offshore wind off the coast of Denmark for Orsted. I mean, Orsted and Lego. That's the two big Danish companies everybody knows, right? It's a bit easier because you just call the crown prince and you get it done. Or even if you're going into some of the other places Orsted's at, Taiwan, other places, like it's just easier to get that that those assets built. And then you come over here and, and it's like a, every time you turn, it's like a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. Every time you turn, you're getting hit from every every angle and you got to fight all these people off. You know, doing backflip kicks and all these things to try to save yourself. And it's, it's like, you know what? we Guys, we've had enough. We're not playing this game. You know what I mean? We, we're not taking all these black guys. We'll just go elsewhere and take our capital, invest it in places that want to have us. I do think it's like pretty, pretty short term, pretty alpha male kind of like, yeah, I'm winning this negotiation, but my city won't have any electricity in 10 years kind of, um, you know, might might be really good for a politician to win their next election. but definitely don't see it as having the the, uh, the city the state sorry the state's um long-term interests at you know at heart lightning is an act of god but lightning damage is not actually it's very predictable and very preventable strike tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by weatherguard it dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory lps so you can stop worrying about lightning damage Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Moving on to better news, GE Vernova <laughs> published some numbers, some of their, their fiscal numbers. Uh, remember that GE Vernova is going to split off into a separate company come Q2 of 2024. So there is a big push to right that ship and become profitable. Uh, so the, the recent numbers, which are published at the end of the third quarter, indicate that uh, the renewables portion of GE Vernova. So there's like two pieces of renewable and then there's power, which is the gas turbine division for the most part. Uh, the renewables division, the wind turbine part is still losing money at about a 200 to $300 million per quarter clip. Uh, it's better. It was $900 million a year ago. So it's less, but they still haven't got cash flow positive. And They've released some numbers also on, on sort of sales and the, the traffic that way and the, the order book. It looks positive. Like they, they are really making progress on getting more orders in, getting things financially for the future set up. But as of right now, it still looks uh, close. It's going to be really close. By Q2 of 2024, they'll probably be just break even. And Phil, I, I think this is a problem for Vernova because once they separate into essentially GE Aerospace, because healthcare has been divided off already. So GE Aerospace splits from GE Electricity, Power, Vernova. Uh, there's no piggy bank. GE Aerospace is profitable. GE Vernova is slightly profitable when they're combined, but there's if something were to happen, like a huge cancellation by Orsted, that's a problem. And I, I don't know how they start to navigate this unless they stock up on lawyers and get really tight on reading contracts and making sure they're not going to get caught up in an Orsted-like situation over the next couple of years. Yeah, but keep in mind as well, Alan, with the numbers you mentioned, they also came out and said that their offshore wind division is losing about a billion a year and will do for the next couple of years. That was before this announcement from Orsted about the cancellation of these these projects. So that could make things a little worse 
Um, the other thing to keep in mind, remember when we talked uh, probably about five or six months ago about um, you know the fact that they brought uh, new new leadership uh, into GE Vernova and and renewable energy now Vernova. Um, the reality of that is they were talking about uh, already being profitable by the third quarter of this year. Uh, that's obviously not happened, but as you said, they are trending in the right direction. The offshore wind uh, segment of the business is not helping at this point. And the question is, how much more of a drag is is that really going to end up being? Um, you know, they've they've had some sales in in Europe um, with the Halliot X. They've had some firm orders in in the U.S. and also not firm orders yet in in the U.S. Um, the Brazilian market is still yet to take off, which one wonders if they're going to even play a part down there because they already pulled out their their onshore wind business. Um, where, yeah, I mean, the question is, where are they going to sell these turbines? Um, you know, they, they will get some more sales in Europe, but how much market share can they really also, um, expect with, well, I mean, Siemens Gamesa is kind of self-imploding now, and, you know, it looks like Vestas may, may dominate with some of the Chinese companies also coming into the fray. So, I don't know, this is very, it's still kind of a tenuous time. Um, again, I will agree with the notion that GE Vernova is looking better than they were, but they're not quite out of the woods yet. Okay, so one of the things I think GE needs to be uh, aware of right now, if I'm sitting in that boardroom, almost every morning I'm probably reviewing what's happening with Siemens Gamesa. Because it, with Siemens Gamesa's massive problems and the four and a half, five and a half billion dollar or billion euro write down that they're going to have, if something like that is to happen to GE, because we've already seen, and, and then I'm not saying this is happening to GE right now, but we've seen a lot of issues with their Cypress platform uh, in, in being installed in Europe with blades breaking off and things happening. So if GE splitting off, like you said, the piggy bank goes away when you remove them from aerospace. So now they're going to be have to stand alone on, them, on themselves. And if they have end up having an issue, uh, with some kind of warranty claim or something of this sort, that could be a big, big problem for them. So on the heels of that, okay, GE is also LM Wind Power. They own that. So that will be a part, that's a part of the GE Vernova, uh, basically, family as well. And we believe, through some really good investigation, slash uh, the easiest investigation of Project, Project Danish of all time, uh, in the state of Colorado, that they may be building a new LM uh lm wind power blade factory i think it was in pueblo if, uh, if i'm if i'm correct um so it, so ge vernova investing in you know taking advantage of some of this ira bill tax credits to build a manufacturing plant here in the states um for some of their new platforms i mean they're gonna have to have order book start to climb to be able to keep that factory gin in as well so again i, I just kind of go back to it, it's it's good that they're trending in the positive direction however for any Western OEM right now, the ice is pretty dang thin. So keep keep uh, keep watching out. Alan and I were doing a little bit of lightning research from a Halloween storm that rolled across Michigan and onto Lake Huron, and then kind of looking to see what would happen to the uh, turbines if there were some on the coast. And he said, "Hey, take a peek at this. Let me see if there's any wind farms here." 
Uh, and one of the wind farms that was right in the middle of this area that got affected by the storm was the Grand Bend Wind Farm owned by Northland Power in Canada. So the project is uh, located right on the eastern shore of Lake Huron. So they're going to get some interesting phenomenon there weather-wise. Uh, and operations and maintenance, of course, the people that are on that wind farm, they know the issues that they've got. So uh, it's a 50-50 uh, partnership developed with a few First Nations groups uh, within Canada. And I'm going to get these probably pretty wrong, but I'm going to say <laughs> Kewanangnang and Amjewanang. First Nations groups. So uh, it has a 20-year power purchase agreement with the Ontario Power Authority, 40 Siemens 2.5 megawatt turbines, uh, and will power uh, about 29,000 homes. So Grand Bend Wind Farm in uh, Western Ontario, you are our Wind Farm of the Week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.